book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, and uh, really easy to find. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you, a blue Bible, and uh, you're just looking for that first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 14. Now, one of the big questions that we ask as Christians is, how do I know that I'm growing in my faith? I mean, really, that's a question we should be asking. We don't want to stay stagnant. We want to be moving forward. So what kind of measures should I apply to my Christian growth? How do I know that I'm moving forward? Well, there's a lot of different ideas out there. Some have measured Christian maturity on biblical comprehension, which is certainly a factor in Christian maturity. I mean, how can I know how to be a Christian, live like a Christian, do Christian things if I don't know the message and I don't understand what the Bible has to say. But having said that, when you look at the life of the Pharisees, I mean, I think they knew the Bible better than anyone I ever known. And they weren't just immature, they weren't Christians. So, Bible knowledge alone does not equal Christian maturity. It's not even necessarily a good measure because some people are better at absorbing information than other people. And Christian maturity is not reserved only for the smart. What about the the commitment to prayer? People talk about Christian maturity being someone who prays all the time. You know, the guy that gets up at 3.30 in the morning to candlelight and prays until his knees uh, have scabs upon them. Well, again, I would say spot on in many ways, uh, though I do not practice at 3.30 a.m. But there's prayer, and then there is prayer, right? So you have the Pharisees. They prayed a lot. And they probably outprayed most of us. And yet Jesus said, what of their prayers? They were essentially useless. What about doing good deeds? Kind things for people, giving. Still not a very good measure. The Pharisees gave a lot, but their giving lacked substance. Jesus said of them, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Can you imagine the offering plate being passed and people are putting spices into it? Please don't do that, by the way. And have neglected, Jesus says, the weightier matters of the law, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. So if it's not about how much you know or how much you pray or how much you put into the offering plate, then what is it about? The classic definition of Christian maturity is Christ-likeness. It means striving for holiness because he was holy. Loving God because Jesus loved the Father. Loving people as Christ loved them, pursuing the lost because Christ came to this world to seek and to save the lost. The amount of grace that you shower on other people is a key indicator of your Christ-likeness. You can read the Bible until your brains fall out. You can pray until your knees bleed. You can give until you have nothing left in the bank account. But if it doesn't translate into meaningful expressions of love for others, then you're a Pharisee a Pharisee. The Apostle John challenges us in this way, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother 
whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's what the Pharisees were lacking. They did all kinds of things for God, but they did not feel one ounce of love for people created in God's image. They were seriously lacking in the love department. Now, as we connect this thought to the life of Abraham, let's remember where we've been. So Abraham is this model, this exemplary model of the life of faith. And I gotta tell you, it's really encouraging to me that Abraham is a model of the life of faith because he has ups and downs, doesn't he? He begins in Ur of the Chaldeans. God calls him to go to the promised land. Does he go right to the promised land? No, he takes a 15-year hiatus in Haran. And then he decides to be faithful to God. He comes down to the promised land, builds altars three in succession to the Negev, and just as quickly as he enters in, he swoops back out again because there's a famine, and he goes down to Egypt. And there in Egypt, he makes a huge mess of things. And God, in his gentleness, patience, and kindness, calls him back into the promised land again. And when Abram is in the promised land, he grows like a weed. And so now he will face another challenge to his faith. This challenge has to do with his nephew, Lot, who has been taken captive. You mean the same Lot that just last week that told him to get lost and said that he wanted all the good things? And Yeah, that Lot. That Lot was taken captive. So we're going to pick up the story with a little bit of background details. We begin in verses 1 through 4. The text reads this, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, the kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea, Twelve years they had served Kedar and but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So let's kind of understand this situation. Verse 1 tells us that we have these four eastern kings, and they're coming to punish these five Dead Sea kings. I mean, it's kind of one of those familiar stories in history that seems to play out over and over again. You have the powerful seeking to subjugate the weaker. And we just celebrated a holiday where we say to ourselves, we don't like these kind of things, right? July 4th, happy independence, everyone. Um, so here you have this guy, Keter Leomer, who we shall now refer to as Big K, who is coming into the Dead Sea region to subjugate these people. So the five kings rebel. They cease to pay their tributes in the 13th year. They had had enough. What is Big K going to do about this? So we pick up in verses 5 through 7. In the 14th year, Kedolaimur and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, Kirathaim, uh, the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat. Uh, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. So just think about this situation, okay? News doesn't travel very fast in this day. Uh, we're given this idea that they paid the tributes for 12 years, 13th year ceased to pay. 
it takes time for Big K to learn about this, doesn't it? So he gets the memo. He understands that they're not going to pay him. And he starts building a coalition of forces around himself so that he can go back and put the hurt on these five kings. We read in verses 5 through 6 that in the 14th year they marched from uh, modern-day Iran through modern-day Iraq all the way through modern-day Syria. And from there, you'll see on the map that they start heading south on the east side of the Jordan River. And Big K starts smacking down all of these inhabitants of this Transjordan region. I mean, this must have been a formidable coalition because the people that he's dealing with here, I mean, they're no lightweights. Uh, the, the name Rephaim means long-stretched. In Deuteronomy 2.11, we learn that these are giants, big, fierce people. The Zuzim are related to them, big, fierce people. In fact, the name Emim, uh, the third uh, nation that they fight with, can be translated as fierce and terrible. And then they also went and fought with these people called the, the Horites, who were cave dwellers. And I don't know if you've ever seen like movies with people dwelling in caves, but they're creepy. <laughs> and so they defeat these guys, and then they go into El Paran and Kadesh Barnea to defeat the Amorites and the Amalekites. So Big K, his forces make their way through giants, through groups who are called fierce and terrible, scary cave dwellers, two other regions, like knives through butter. And as they make their way through, now that they have ensured that there will be no surprise attack from behind, They start making their way up north to the Dead Sea region to squash this rebellion of five kings. Let's pick up at verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. With Kedileomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, that's tar pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. The rest fled to the hill country so that the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and went their way. Apparently, five against four, home field advantage was not enough to defeat this invading force that had come upon these Dead Sea kings. Big K and his forces so badly beat them that these kings in their panic, using a a battlefield that was meant to support their battle efforts with tar pits, get so panicked, so frenzied, that they turn around and they run and they fall into their own pits. And those that don't fall into the pits head for the hills. And so what does Big K do? Well, he goes into Sodom, Gomorrah, and he takes all the treasure. But enough of these international conflict side details. I mean, why waste our time on all the insignificant details when God's eternal story is moving forward? Why not focus on the real story? You see, verses 1 through 11 are just introductory comments to tell us about the real problem. 
The real problem is found in verse 12. They also took, who? Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and they went their way. So wait a minute, you're, you're saying that Lot's capture is the significant detail in all of these epic battles that were taking place that would have had newsreels going night and day for days, months, uh, even beyond that was not consequential to this situation? Absolutely, according to the Bible. You see, Wright Stedman notes this, that the Bible never reports on any human history except that which relates to God's people and I would add, to God's purposes being accomplished. I wonder how much time we spend fixating upon the wrong historical details. Uh, We believe that the moments of history are happening as there are the going outs of armies, the major diplomatic events, the rising and the fall of economies, the uprisings and uh, revolutions, the, the consolidation of power. But those are not the moments that hit the headlines in heaven. You see, in this story, in this situation, the headline in heaven was Wayward Lot Captured at Sodom. Followed up with the question, Will Abram Pursue? That's why God's plans, purposes, and ways are so unconventional. So this war, this tide of war, sweeps past the tent of Abram, and he's left to make a decision. Let's pick up at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, He led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Isn't that amazing? Abram's immediate response is to go in pursuit. I would submit to you this morning that that is the mark of a changed life. This was not an easy decision. He would put himself at personal risk. He would give up time and money. The the first leg of this trip to Dan would require about 120 miles of travel. Then it tells us that he goes on beyond that into Damascus, which would require another 100 miles of travel. And so you think to yourself, well, Abram and his 318 men, they go approximately 220 miles one way. Why? Why would you do that? I mean, wasn't Lot the guy that shows ease over the promised land and he essentially spat on Abram's years of good leadership and faithful presence and generosity and for what? Better grass? Better trade? Uh, To go into the hustle and bustle of this burgeoning city? Well, yeah. Yeah, he did. Lot made bad choices. He put himself in harm's way. He chose to live next to Sodom, and then the text tells us he's living in Sodom. 
Yes, he was ungrateful, he was selfish, he was thoughtless, and yet the Bible says that Abraham, what? Went in pursuit, implying at great cost to himself, implying with no deeper agenda than to simply relieve his suffering. Why? Because Lot was a close relative, the Bible says. It's in moments like these that God puts our understanding of his grace to the test. He puts difficult people in your life. People that sin habitually, sins that you don't sin. People who you don't get along with. People who you look at and you think to yourself, I don't think they're the type of person that I would associate myself with. And he does this to show you the inner workings of your own heart. Are you gracious, merciful, forgiving? Or do you secretly believe that you are in some way more deserving, qualified, exceptional than others? Let's think about all the responses that Abram could have had in this moment. Responses that I've had in moments like these. Maybe he thought to himself, Lot made his own theological bed. Sadly, we can rationalize a lack of pursuit and compassion with good theology gone bad. We can say to ourselves that there's natural consequences associated with sin, so therefore, I should just leave them to experience those natural consequences and not get involved at all. Good theology gone bad. Lot certainly made his own bed. He made a terrible decision to move close to Sodom and then to make it worse by moving in. He compromises just the world. If he had made better choices, he wouldn't be in the situation he is now. But Abram doesn't think that, does he? Abram just goes. He pursues. Or maybe sometimes we think to ourselves that their particular sin is too big of a sin. I remember with great shame, a letter of response that I sent a friend who was crying out to me for grace and mercy when I was 20 years old. He had committed one of those sins that just kind of makes my blood boil. He was in this dating relationship with a young woman and it was turning toxic. They were arguing all the time. Uh, he struggles with outbursts of anger and in, in one of those exchanges, things got so out of control that he put his hands on her and the police had to get involved. And he reaches out to me in a moment of desperation. Rob, you're someone I trust. I've made a big mistake. What should I do? And my heart grew self-righteous. I don't know what I was thinking in the moment. I was probably thinking something stupid like, I would never do something like that. And so I follow up his cry for grace with a letter of condemnation about how he needs to get right with Jesus, how he needs to think about just how messed up his life is. And this is just a prime example of how messed up his life is. And then on and on I go, even to the point of signing the letter, disappointed Rob. Rob. 
Now, just to be clear, abuse in any form is wrong. It should be dealt with. It should be dealt with to the full extent of the law. End of story. But how dare I when someone is crying out for grace and mercy, look at their sin as special and my sin as normal. How dare I? Sure, Lot moved to Sodom. But don't forget, Abraham fled down to Egypt. Galatians 6.1 does not say, brothers, if anyone is caught in sins that you are generally okay with, restore them. No, it says, if anyone is caught in any transgression. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And what else? Keep watch on yourself. Why? Lest you be tempted too. There are other thoughts we have, like, it's not my problem. Someone else is going to take care of it. God in his sovereignty will work things out for this person. But Abram doesn't think these things. He pursues. Now what would cause a man or woman to drop everything and pursue? Let's talk about grace for a moment. Grace is one of those words that we throw around a lot in the church, and we should. It's one of those words that we should talk about, read about, preach about, pray about, sing about. It should be one of those words that is just like salt and pepper, effusive throughout the local church of Jesus Christ. Grace is God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. This is what Jesus did when he came. The entire message of the gospel is that Jesus saves a lost humanity from the bed that they've made and the great sins that they have sinned, and he gets personally involved. Isn't that amazing? God didn't have to save a single person. He didn't owe it to us. Uh, it was well within his rights to let us just go on our hell-bound path. But Paul says... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you were a corpse. There was nothing that you could do spiritually made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you've been saved. If Christian maturity is Christ-likeness, then it only makes sense that uh, mature Christians would be brimming over with the grace of God for other people. If God's means of reaching the world would be grace, sending his son, then God's means of reaching the world through us would also be for him to lavish that world with grace through his people. And I believe that in the world that we're living in today, the secular world that's all around us, the world that's kind of taking a moral dive off of a cliff, a, a world that is saying that we don't need God anymore, we're all set, we can do things on our own, I think the only way that this world is going to get reached, just like it was when Jesus came onto the scene, is by Christians getting radical about grace. So what does grace look like? Well, it looks like a lot of things. Grace is choosing to look past the flaws and foibles, those kind of outward, 
imperfections that we love to hang upon, but God doesn't care that much about. And looking into the heart and seeing the transformative gold that the Holy Spirit's working in that heart. Grace is asking, do they know Jesus before saying they need to stop doing? Now, don't get me wrong. Grace is not condoning sin. It's not truth denying. It takes sin seriously, but it is kind. It is patient with sinful people who are coming to Jesus. In fact, in Romans 2.4, Paul says to judgmentalism and self-righteousness, he says, or do you not presume, or do not you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to, what? Lead people to repentance. God didn't reach people by coming and sticking a finger in their face and saying, you're so wrong and you're never going to get right with me. Uh, in fact, God reached, uh, reached out to people by coming and living amongst us, living a life we couldn't live, and dying in our place. He lavished us with grace. You see, grace is God's means of working in the world. God uses messy people to accomplish his glorious plans. If it wasn't for grace... Jesus would have never have called Matthew the tax collector because he wasn't good enough. If it wasn't for grace, Jesus would have said to the sinful woman that was washing his feet, don't touch me, you are filthy. But instead, he says, because of this act of great uh, love that you've poured forth upon me, people will talk about you in every household in the world. And guess what? We're still talking about her. Grace is Jesus restoring the thrice Christ denier, Peter. Grace is Barnabas welcoming in Paul, who everyone was leery about because he had been persecuting the church and they didn't really know what to make of him, but Barnabas saw the gold that God was producing in him. Grace is the lifeblood of the church. Without grace, there is no transformative work of God happening in our lives. One pastor says it like this, it reminds us that in Jesus, grace, we are shielded and protected from the worst things about ourselves because Jesus shields us like this. We should, of all people, be zealous to restore reputations versus destroying reputations. To protect a good name versus calling someone a name. To shut down gossip versus feeding gossip. To restore broken relationships versus begrudging broken people. But wait a minute, isn't that kind of risky? I mean, uh, doesn't that mean that at times we're going to have to accept and brace and, and rub shoulders with people that make us feel awkward and uncomfortable? And couldn't they kind of trample upon our good graces? What do you think? Absolutely they could. Grace is messy. Grace is risky. That's what we see in this story with Abraham. He pursues, but it's not at no cost to himself. In fact, I would submit to you, you're not pursuing if it doesn't cost you anything. Abraham pursued Lot. He went 220 miles one way. He went with only 318 men after an army who had not lost a battle fighting giants and, and scary people. He went 
and he became personally involved. And through God, he experienced victory. Look at the text, verses 15 and 16. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoban, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all of the possessions and and brought back his kinsman Lot with the possessions and the women and the people. Now, let's ask a question. Did he succeed? Yes and no. Yes, he conquested, he defeated in a, a great military strike. No, because what? Lot went back to Sodom. Sometimes when we pursue people, they break our heart. We, we give everything, we pour everything into them, and it only seems like the effort was wasted, but was his effort wasted? No. It wasn't wasted because Abram's agenda was not to manipulate life change upon another person. His agenda was to lavish them with the grace of God and let God do the work. As we continue in this story, we're going to see a shift in the thought just a little bit. Abram has uh, gone on conquest. He's experienced this great victory. And the text now talks to us about what do you do when you've won? How do you handle it? Verse 16 tells us that he's bringing back all of these possessions, these captives. He's displayed military prowess. Big K wasn't expecting anything. Abram comes in the middle of the night. He divides the forces, very strategic of him. They get them in such a panic that he is able to route them from Dan all the way up into Damascus. I mean, think about the, the, the celebration, the victory of, of a win like this. Abram went and he defeated this colossal army with only 318 men. Have you ever seen anything like this before? He goes from being just a well-known person in Canaan to becoming legendary. And that's tempting. That's real tempting. So we see this newfound success leading to a new temptation in his life, and we see the temptation displayed between the interaction of Abraham and two different kings. The first king we meet is in verse 17, the king of Sodom. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. So he meets this king of Sodom. He brings out this caravan of riches. And let's just say this. I mean, treasure, for whatever reason, just seems to bring all the snakes out of the den. So the king comes, and he suggests to Abraham, you keep all of the goods. You were incredibly successful. I'll take what's mine. You take what's yours. Must have been an absolutely flattering offer. I mean, vast riches, precious metals, resources beyond your wildest dream, take credit for the victory. It's been said that there are few temptations as powerful yet subtle as praise. Proverbs 27, 21, the crucible is for silver 
and the furnace is for gold, but man is tested by the praises he receives. And what is flattery? Is flattery real? Is flattery someone wanting something for you? No. Be careful of flattery because it is often laden with expectation. If Abram keeps the treasure, he is now enmeshed, entangled with, associated with, indebted to the king of Sodom. Essentially, if he says yes to the treasure, it's God and Sodom. And Jesus said, you cannot have two masters. The Lord God said, I will not share my glory. So look at how Abram responds to the snakish offer. Verse 21 Give me the persons, take the goods for yourself. Verse 22, Abram says to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. He chooses to take or to uh, give credit to where credit is due, doesn't he? He does not want anything. He won't even take a shoestring from this man. You know, there's a question that we're perpetually being asked in life. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 121:1 asked the question that kind of is perpetually before us: Where does my help come from? Where's your source of security? What, what gives you ease of mind? What makes you feel safe? What causes you to uh, pursue things? Is it riches? Is it your own grit and determination? Do you make you? Is it knowing the right kind of people? The question always before us in this life is, where does my help come from? Abram's answer it's brilliant. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And you get the sense in the text that Abram didn't kind of come to this idea on his own. He was helped along the way by a second king, the king of Salem. Look at verses 18 to 20 now. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, but God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, Melchizedek is one of those mysterious figures that we meet in the Bible. He's here on the pages of scriptures for just a couple of verses, and then he disappears, right? Well, here's what we know about him from the details of this story. Uh, one, we're told his name's Melchizedek. Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. We're told that he is king of a city named Salem, which means peace, which is likely the ancient site for Jerusalem. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. He's a priest of the Most High God, which is the same God that Abram worships. He pronounces a blessing on him, giving glory to the giver and not the gift. And I might add, when someone in the Old Testament blesses someone else, they are superior to them. 
And we see this also because Abram uh, gives a tithe to Melchizedek. He's mentioned later in the Bible, so almost 800, 900 years later, King David makes this messianic pronouncement. He says in Psalm 110.4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then the author of Hebrews brings him up again as one of the central reasons why Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priests because Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, but an Old Testament priest in the line of Aaron could not be both of those things. So who is he? Well, there are three popular views. Uh, One view is that he is an angel. Another view is that he is the pre-incarnate Jesus, which means Jesus before Jesus was born as a human baby. Or third, some believe that he was a king who somehow knew the living God apart from Abram and serves as a type of Christ. What is a type? A type is a person or thing that foreshadows or represents Jesus in the Old Testament. So this third option appears to be the most biblical. He was a priest king, and the the future Messiah would also be a priest king. He is the one example that we have in the Old Testament of what this kind of paradigm would look like. So David looks back, and, and the author of Hebrews looks back, and they say, look, Jesus is not like Aaron. Jesus is like Melchizedek. He is superior to Aaron. Why? Because Melchizedek was superior to Abram. But more to the point of this story, as we think about Melchizedek, he is a genuinely righteous king who encourages Abram by blessing him and reminding him of where his help comes from. Look again at that blessing. Blessed be Abram by God, most high possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who did what? Has delivered your enemy into your hands. He reminds Abram where your help comes from. It comes from the Lord. Remember that when you're successful. Remember that when you have possessions. Remember that when you think the tabloids should be espousing your credentials your name, your popularity. As we close out this morning, considering the implications of this story, let me ask you a question. If someone came to your tent and told you that Lot has been taken captive, would you have gone? Or maybe better asked, how are you doing in the Grace Department? How are you doing? I want to tell you one more story. It was a story shared with me by Jan Wyant, uh, a story about grace that a local church poured upon a man named Al. You see, Al was standing outside of a Christian-based faith clinic, and he had all these things racing through his mind as he was approaching that door about to walk in. Will I be okay? Am I going to be all right? Are these people going to accept me when I walk through this threshold? You see, Al 
was going into a clinic that tested people for HIV, and he had contracted it, or at least he thought he had, because he was engaging in the homosexual lifestyle. He stood outside of that clinic, carrying the weight of the world. He went into the clinic, meeting a woman named Diane. Diane was a believer. She was a nurse practitioner who volunteered her time in order to minister God's love to people in this clinic. So when Al met Diane, he walked through the doors and she greeted him warmly. Uh, she listened to his story intently. She shared the good news of Jesus with him. And she even invited Al to her local church. And he said he'd go. So she goes back to her local church, tells them all about Al's story, that he's heard the gospel, that he seemed to have responded to the gospel, and now he's going to come to church, and he says, church, we got to make sure we welcome this guy when he gets into this place. And so when Al comes through the door the first time, he's met at the door by Diane. She starts introducing him around the church. He's treated with warmth. He hears about the love of Christ. He sees the love of Christ through the church. He says to himself as he's leaving the church, I feel forgiven. I feel loved. I don't feel judged. And then Al starts getting involved. He starts attending Bible study. He becomes a regular part of the church family. But after a year or so, his old life started calling him back again. Al felt so ashamed of himself for getting back into his old lifestyle that he wouldn't set foot in that church. People started reaching out to him. Phone calls made. People trying to get visits to happen. People just leaving notes and saying, we care about you, we love you. We know you're running right now, but there's always a place for you here. And for nine months, Al had no contact with the church. But over time, some of those letters started breaking through the wall of the heart. And so he finally came back to church, and instead of having someone point a finger at him, he was treated like the prodigal son. He was loved, cherished, Again, not judged. This time, Al stayed committed. He started growing deeply in the Lord, studying the Bible, getting in fellowship with people. Uh, the Lord started working on his heart. And, and when God works in your heart, he changes your desires for the things that you formerly loved. And he starts to put those affections and desires onto the person of Jesus. So much so that Al not only became radically changed in his lifestyle choice, but he also became radically changed in what he wanted to do with his life. He felt a call for missions. The church that loved Al through his mess now was committing to sending Al to share the love of Jesus with others in South Africa. And Jan says that Al is still there today extending the, the grace that he had received to other people in South Africa. Friends, what kind of church do you want to be? What kind of people do you want to be? I don't know about you, but I want to be the, the seeking, pursuing, with the patience and kindness of God kind of people. How about you? Let's pray.